This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome. This is Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Luanda Maume. I am your standing host at least until tomorrow. And with me on the show is Wisani Matebula and Tamsang Matluza. Top stories now. The African Union seeks more binding laws to cap the scourge of human trafficking. South Africa intensifies the campaign to encourage condom use. And in economics, South Africa's Reserve Bank hikes interest rates and in sports. The South African national women's hockey team ready to take on Belgium in the third test match tonight. Details on these and other stories as we progress with the show. But right now, let's get to latest news now with Wisani Matebula. Good evening. A senior Egyptian interior ministry official has been assassinated outside his home in Cairo. This has put pressure on the military-backed government as it struggles to contain an Islamist insurgency. General Mohammed Saeed, head of the technical office of the Minister of the Interior, was targeted by gunmen. Islamist militants have stepped up attacks on security forces since Army Chief Field Marshal Abdel Fattah al-Assis toppled President Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood in July. The assassination comes within days before Sisi announced his candidacy for president. Efforts to secure the release of kidnapped South African teacher Pierre Koki in Yemen continue. The UN Security Council has just passed a resolution calling on the member states to prevent terrorists from benefiting directly or indirectly from ransom payments. The United Kingdom, which authored the text, estimates that Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups have over the last three and a half years collected more than $10 million in foreign national ransom payments, Sherwin Bryce Peace reports. The unanimous passing of this resolution creates no new legal obligations but draws greater attention to a practice that's on the rise. As the lead author on the text, the UK's Sir Mark Lyle Grant explains. Action today by the Security Council illustrates the international community's commitment to tackling kidnap for ransom, which has become the most significant terrorist financing challenge and remains a terrible threat to nationals of all countries. 
The kidnappers of Pierre Korki are demanding over 30 million rand after he was taken in the city of Taiz, along with his wife Yolandi, who was released earlier this year. The General Council of the Bar of South Africa has called on government to react uh, to a surge in anti-gay activity in Africa. Nigeria, Uganda this month adopted legislation against homosexuals and there have been reports of arrests of gay men. Deputy Chairperson of the Bar, Jeremy Mula. We were disturbed by recent reports about anti-gay legislation in other countries in the continent. Uh, Nigeria and Uganda are examples. We thought it was important that our government should live up to the provisions of our constitution in that respect, not only within our country, but also to call on governments elsewhere in the continent to protect the rights of, of gays and lesbians. And we feel that certainly there is some, uh, some point to that criticism, but we don't do so because the U.S. or any other country has condemned the law. Authorities in Iraq say two separate attacks against the country's security forces have killed seven soldiers and police officers. Police officials say gunmen attacked a joint security checkpoint near Magdadia town, killing five soldiers and wounding four. Magdadia is 90 kilometers north of Baghdad. Also, police and hospital officials say local Al-Qaeda militants attacked a police station near Fallujah, west of Baghdad, killing two police officers. They say the gunmen used used explosives to destroy the station after other officers fled. India is said to send state archaeologists to the Afghan capital, Kabul, to examine a begging bowl of Lord Gautama Buddha. Experts believe the giant artifact reached Afghanistan with the expansion of a Hindu empire in the Iron Age. The expedition comes just months after India ordered a futile dig for 1,000 tons of gold, which a mystic said he saw in his dreams. Rana Sen reports. The giant granite vessel kept in Kabul's National Museum weighs 400 kilograms and is 4 meters tall. The artifact was gifted to Buddha by the people of Vaishali town in eastern India and it moved to Kabul via Peshawar in Pakistan and Kandahar in Afghanistan between 322 and 185 BC as Buddhism spread along an expanding Hindu empire. The archaeologists will test the bowl for possible Indian materials used to build it to strengthen New Delhi's claim on the peace. Experts said Lord Buddha used it to collect arms. The cry for the begging bowl was raised in Indian National Parliament last year and Ravindran Gopinath of Indian Council of Historic Research said the expedition was part of a project to retrieve India's plundered treasures. And finally, a Kenyan court has imposed a hefty sentence on a self-confessed ivory trafficker. The Chinese national Tang Yongjian pleaded guilty to three charges relating to the possession of raw ivory. Jian was caught at Nairobi's international airport last week with an ivory tusk weighing 3.5 kilograms. He's the first to be sentenced under the new Kenya Wildlife Act of 2013. Under this law, the magistrate could have imposed the death penalty. Jian was slept with a $200,000 fine in state. If he is unable to pay, he faces seven years imprisonment. Magistrate William Okech explains. The accused cannot honestly claim ignorance since the growth in illegal trade in ivory and the involvement of Chinese citizens is a cause for major concern internationally. Accordingly, court has considered the mitigation of the accused and shall convict him on only one count since the second and third counts are subsumed into the main offense of being in possession. And that's your news for now.
Well, I say thank you very much there to Wisani with that news bulletin and uh, let's get on with the show. The African Union says the challenge of curbing human trafficking and other related vices is that the policies set by the Union are not legally binding. This means that no country can be held responsible legally and be forced to be accountable in case they violate any, any of these policies. Coletta Wanjohi reports. According to the International Organization for Migration, as of March 2013, there were over 9 million refugees and internally displaced people in East Africa and the Horn of Africa. Climate change and environmental degradation, armed conflicts and political, economic and food crisis continue to force people to flee their homes, resulting in a growing need for assistance. Such challenges, experts say, continue to contribute largely to the increase of human trafficking in Africa. The African Union says that human trafficking has a great relationship to drug trafficking, sexual exploitation and illegal migration. The challenge of curbing these vices is that one needs to get a lot of in-depth information from the organizations that have developed methods of combating them. The African Union Commissioner for Social Affairs, David Kiloko, reports that the African Union has been trying to reduce human trafficking in the continent by establishing initiatives at regional level. But our problem is... The policies we set up, the framework programs we set up in the African Union are non-binding. There is no legal basis. You know, if we set up a framework and we ask a member state to implement it and it doesn't, they are not, there is no legal binding. The nearest thing we have to something legal that binds legally is the African community of experts on uh, uh, the, the rights and welfare of children whereby sometimes we can hold the nations accountable. In addition, the African Union says that it's very difficult to control human trafficking and illegal migration because majority of the migrants are young people and women. Failure of the continent to engage these vulnerable groups directly to see how they can respond and maybe reduce the numbers, Commissioner Kiloko says, fuels further the challenge. There has to be a leeway. There has, there has to be vulnerable groups, you know, potential targets, you know, if we engage our governments to make the situation, education, employment, we engage the civil society, you know, bring everybody in to make it difficult for women, I mean for youth, children and the vulnerable groups, you know, to be less amenable to expose themselves to the question of uh, trafficking. I think that's another way we could do it. The African Union emphasizes that countries in Africa need to take human trafficking as an international problem and participate actively in internationally accepted initiatives so as to fasten the reduction of this vice which every day snatches Africans from their homes. Kuleton Johi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. About 15 political parties in Malawi has so far collected presidential nomination forms beating the 2009 general elections which had seven candidates. This means that they will be vying for the presidency position in the May 20th tripartite elections. They are expected to compete for the 7 million registered voters. Malawi's population is 14 million according to recent statistics from the National Statistics Office. This is also the first time that Malawi has such a huge number of presidential candidates during the polls since 1961. George Mango on that story. What this means is that if all the 15 political parties field presidential candidates, it will be a record for Malawi. Late President Bingo Wamutarika won the race, which saw his main opponent, John Tembo of the Malawi Congress Party, come second. Other aspirants were Kamuzu Chimambo of the Post-Transformation Party Petra, late Stanley Masauli of the Republican Party, 
Loveness Gondo of the New Rainbow Coalition, James Nyondo, an independent and late Dean Gowanyasulu of Alliance for Democracy. Suffice to say it that another former ruling United Democratic Front, UDF, did not field a candidate because the candidature of former President Bakili Molozi was thrown out on the basis that any former president who had served two terms was not allowed by law to bounce back. Various political parties that I've spoken to confirmed collecting presidential nomination forms. Notable ones include MCP, People's Party PP, and the Democratic Progressive Party DPP. These three parties, deemed major political parties in Malawi, have since ruled out chances of forming alliances. According to the DPP Secretary General Jean Kalidani, the party is ready for the polls and that it would go alone. DPP has support in the southern region districts of Mulanje, Palombe, Tiolo and Chirazuru, mostly Lomo-speaking districts. MCP spokesperson Jessica Buira also confirmed the party has collected nomination forms for its president, Lazarus Chapira, who took over from John Timbo as the party's leader. MCP is also dominant in the central region districts, mostly the Chewa-speaking districts. For the PP Secretary General, Paul Maulidi, who admitted collecting forms as well as the party taking pride in the eastern region where incoming President Joyce Banda comes from, definitely they are going to battle it out with the stronghold a member also from the same region, Atupe Mulozi, under the United Democratic Front ticket. Mulozi is the son to former President Baki Mulozi. But Maulidi denied that the party is in alliance with the Alliance for Democracy Afford whose chairperson, Enoch Chihana, is in the cabinet of President Joyce Banda as Minister of Sports. On the other hand, the People's Progressive Movement has also collected the nomination forms which has been filed by its president, Mark Katsonga, who just won the party's nod to lead them at the polls last week. PPM has its base in only two districts of Manza and Neno in the western part of Malawi, basically also part of the southern region. But during the previous polls, it did not produce any parliamentarian. The People's Transformation Party Petra Secretary General Stephen Kamendo and Umozi Party UP say their respective parties were ready to collect the forms and will contest the presidency. For the Malawi Forum for Unity and Development, Mafunde, the party will go into an electoral alliance with other five parties so they field one candidate. According to the Malawi Electoral Commission, political parties are collecting forms from the Center for Multiparty Democracy, CMD. However, its executive director, Kizito Tenhani, would not discuss the names and number of political parties that have collected presidential nomination forms. The process of collecting nomination forms started on January the 16th and runs up to February 14th. According to the electoral body, submission of the nomination papers is expected between February 10 and 14. The Malawi Electoral Commission at the Chichiru International Conference, popularly known as Komesa Hall in Malawi's commercial capital, Blantyre. After that, the commission will announce the two-month campaign period from mid-March to the three days before pause on May 20 after the presidency dissolves the National Assembly. This is the first time that Malawi will have to choose a legislator president and ward councillor after a failed bid in 2004 and 2009 owing it to financial challenges and lack of a legal instrument guaranteeing such a move. These polls, according to most commentators, are also important to the history of Malawi 
in that they are likely to put an end to the political vengeance that has dominated Malawi since 2004 when former President Bingo Mtarika dumped UDF, a party that sponsored him to win the 2004 to form his DPP on claims that his fight against corruption was being let down by the former President Bakiri Mulozi, now answering anti-graft charges. After Mtarika formed his DPP, he won a landslide in 2009. However, he also fired his vice president, Joyce Banda, now president from the DPP, who right away formed the People's Party. When he died of cardiac arrest in April 2012, Banda, though fired from the DPP, became automatic president of Malawi because of the constitution that whenever the president dies, the vice president takes over. On the other hand, these polls are coming at a time when Malawi is to celebrate 20 years of post-Matipate democracy and then the 50 years of independence. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. The trial of Somali is facing charges of allegedly assisting terrorists who attacked Nairobi's Westgate Mall shopping mall more than four months ago have entered its second week uh, in a Nairobi magistrate's court. The trial comes a week after magistrate state prosecutor the four Somalis as well as their lawyers visited the scene of the attack west of the Kenyan capital. Our correspondent James Shimanula spent a couple of minutes cajoling the parents of one of the four suspects into speaking to him exclusively for their first time outside the courtroom. As revelations continue to unfold on how Kenya's security agencies failed to act on intelligence reports about pending Westgate attack, I managed to get an exclusive interview with the parents of those suspected to have helped the gunman. Speaking outside the courtroom where his son Mohammed Ahmed Abdi is being charged, Sheikh Mohammed Hassan reiterated that his son is a Kenyan citizen and not a Somali citizen as alleged by Kenyan authorities. The young man is called Mohammed Ahmed. He has never seen Somalia. The young man is a Kenyan. A Kenyan. Even his grandfather is a Kenyan. The feeling I have is that they have lied against our son. This is the position. This young man is a Kenyan. Never has he been to another place. He did nothing wrong. He absolutely did nothing wrong. Speaking in Somali language, Asha Mohammed Hassan supported her husband's position and said her son was innocent. My son has been arrested for doing nothing. This child was born in Kenya. They are not Al Shabab. At all, at all. The father was born here. The they started here. 
This child teaches children Quran. How come that they are tying them to Al Shabab? They are not. He teaches in Madrasa in Islam. They are pursuing Al-Shabaab. We are not Al-Shabaab. This child, Al-Kathir, Al-Kathir means senior most uh, sheikh that um, writes notes for students from the Quran to make them easily read. Shortly after speaking to Asha, mother to Muhammad Ahmed Abdi, I spoke to Warakat Hussein, mother to Hussein Hassan Mustafa. I asked her if her son and his other co-accused were being treated well in prison. They are well treated. Realizing that Warakat had curtly responded to my question, I tried to persuade her to elaborate on the prison conditions, but she abruptly shut her mouth and walked away with a sullen face. So I turned to another parent of the suspect, the mother to Adnan Mohammed Dek Ibrahim. Like her fellow colleagues, she insisted that the four suspects were being wrongly accused. My name is Dekabara. We feel bad because our people have been held without committing any offense. All citizens of Kenya are saying, We are Kenyans. These are not Somalis. They have Kenya identity cards. The issue of identity cards has generated a heated debate led by state prosecutor James Mungai Warui. He has accused the suspects of illegally obtaining identity cards. Nurta Abdi, mother to Liban Abdullah Omar, disclosed remarks that seemed to contradict what the other parents had told me regarding the Kenyan citizenship of their sons. My son is a refugee from Kakuma refugee camp. He doesn't even know Nairobi. He came to see me here in Nairobi. He has been accused wrongly. Kakuma refugee camp, located in the arid and dusty northwestern region of Kenya, is home to more than 200,000 refugees who fled wars in neighboring countries, including Somalia. The refugees are strictly prohibited from leaving the camp unless valid permits allow them to do so. All my efforts to find out from Nurta Abdi how her son came from Kakuma refugee camp to Nairobi's Isli residential area, popularly known as Little Mogadishu, fell on deaf ears. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back. 
Most people know that condoms should be worn by everyone who wants to enjoy sex without the risk of an unwanted pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections, STIs. Despite this, the lines around condom use can become blurred, especially for long-term couples in love. With Valentine's Day approaching and love in the air, medical experts in South Africa say it's an important time to consider the options and negotiate safely to avoid what can be for many a sticky situation. Palisa Kambi, Marketing and Communications Manager at Maristope South Africa, says there are several reasons why people choose not to use condoms. Well, there's quite a number of issues why people don't use condoms. You know, the common ones that we do know of are most of them, unfortunately, come from men. So it may be that, you know, the excuse is no birth control or family planning is a woman's responsibility. So therefore, I don't need to put it high on my list of priorities. It's also that, you know, they don't make condoms that fit me. So, you know, that's another excuse why. And sometimes we hear couples say, no, but sex feels better without a condom. So then we choose not to use a condom. And we all know that's not true because sex can be enhanced with the use of condoms. There's many new variations of condoms with taste and smells that actually can enhance the experience. With STIs so common in South Africa, do people even know the symptoms and risks associated with them? I think, you know, there is a certain number of people that are aware, but for a large portion of because STIs sometimes only get detected when people have actual symptoms. Some STIs you know, can go underlying and undetected for a while until they've actually started displaying symptoms. That's when people will start now wanting to engage with their healthcare facilities or their general practitioners or families and so forth. But I do think, you know, people are aware that there are STIs, but in terms of actually knowing what STIs and transmission levels and how you can get STIs, I think everyone is assuming that, you know, most people are assuming that you can only get it through sexual intercourse, but there's oral gonorrhea as well that you can get, so all sorts of sexually transmitted infections that you can get. But I'm not sure if, you know, South Africans are really, really aware of, you know, all the details that come with how you can get infected with an STI. Apart from the fear of being stigmatized, what other reasons are there why people are reluctant to seek medical attention for sexually transmitted illnesses? It could be due to the fact that for a very long time, health education or family planning education has been aimed at women. You know, so it's always women that need to go to the clinic to have get their family planning or all of those types of issues. So it might be that. And also... The negotiation of condom use, it's not very great when you look at the ratios between males and females, especially in a country like South Africa. The negotiation condom use between males and females, especially younger females, becomes less and less. It's only women as they get older sometimes, and in not all instances, that they're able to voice out and be you know, very staunch about their positions with regards to protecting themselves from STIs or unwanted pregnancies. But I understand not all is doom and gloom. Some strides have been made in the country in the prevention and treatment of STIs. Take us through that. So the National Department of Health has been working with a lot of organizations such as ourselves, Marie Stokes, and your, the UNFPA and JAHISA, 
and Love Life and Soul City. It's all an integrated program that the Deaf Department of Health is working on to educate people on family planning and the important message of dual protection. So that has been an ongoing program and I know for a very long time it's been punting the message of HIV and AIDS and you know, shying away from getting that disease, you know, getting infected with that disease. But I think now as the times are changing and as we, you know, step as in terms of infection rates in the country, we're going to be seeing quite a lot of family planning campaigns and campaigns on condom use or dual protection use because I think now the message of HIV and AIDS has been translated quite well and people are aware of the risks. But I think now we need to start the conversation going again on the importance of family planning and the importance of condom use and the importance of you know women being empowered to make those types of decisions with regards to contraceptions and the negotiation power between them and their partners when it comes to condom use. You touched base on the issue of campaigns. Let's talk about the role your organization plays in this battle. What services do you offer? Marie Stokes offers a range of sexual reproductive health care services and with regards to specifically to STIs and HIV and AIDS prevention, we obviously do HIV and AIDS testing and counselling. We do CD4 counts in some of our centres if someone presents positive during an HIV test. We do STI, well, we do syndromic STI management, and then we also then offer condoms, both female and male, and we work in partnerships with a lot of other organizations that we can refer to for, you know, issues that we're not able to assist with. That is Balisa Kambi, Marketing and Manager, Communications Manager at Mary Stopes, South Africa, on the line talking there to Elizabeth Maparing. South Africa's first public interest law centre, Section 27, says children with disabilities also have the right to quality education. The organisation says children with disabilities are being denied the right to education. Numerous communities around the country are complaining of poor access, overcrowding and inadequately trained teachers in special schools. Reports have shown that there are only three special needs schools in a district of over half a million people in the KwaZulu-Natal province. The Section 27 says is just a tip of the iceberg and proves that Basic Education Department has not effectively planned for or invested in the quality of education for children with disabilities. More from Mike Haywitt, spokesperson at Section 27. I think that many children with disabilities are being denied a right to education. I don't know exactly how many, but I believe that probably it's many thousands of of children. And I say that on the basis of interactions that Section 27 has had with some special needs schools, which are schools which are specially set up for children with severe physical or intellectual disabilities, but also through talking to people in the disabled community who complain that even uh, people who, who may be deaf or people who may be partially sighted or blind are not being included in education systems, that education systems are not being accommodated to make it possible for those children to fit. And that is what we are complaining about. And is the government addressing this issue of there not being enough special schools and the poor access and overcrowding in the schools that are there? Is government doing something about this? Is it addressing such issues? Well, government would say that it's doing something about it. You know, funnily enough, I just we just come back from a meeting with the Deputy Minister of basic education and we raise this issue but I think even government will admit that it's not doing enough and the point is that a child with a disability has an equal right to basic education in South Africa not a lesser right so the duty is on the government to do everything that it can 
to make it possible for disabled children to enter into the system. They can't be kept out of the system and, and denied an education. So even if it means more resources and more costs and more teachers to teach disabled children, that is something the government has to be responsible for. And even in 2012, there were reports that there were not enough special schools. What is taking government so long to address such an important issue of basic education for the disabled? Well, I, I hate to say this, but I think it's part of it is just a lack of care or concern for people with disabilities. You know, people with disabilities are not a strongly organized constituency. They don't have a strong voice in many instances. And officials just seem to, to forget people who have, uh, have disabilities. And so the problem goes on and on. You know, I'm working with a school in a rural area of KZN where this problem is at least 10 years old you know, where there's been many, many years of trying to get children into the schools and, and, and failing. And that's what we're trying to change. You know, we need children and parents of children with disabilities to be more visible, to speak out, to demand that the government provides them with their rights and to demand that they get quality education. Because, you know, if, if you're a child who doesn't have a disability and you don't get an education, you're disadvantaged in life. But if you have a disability, you're already disadvantaged. Life is already difficult. If you're then denied an education, it probably means that you will never escape the constraints of your disability. Uh, and that's wrong. That is Mike Haywood. He's a spokesperson at Section 27, South Africa's Public Interest Law Center, talking there to Humoto Mopulani. In this week's health slot, we focus on burns, the most common childhood accidents. Nearly half of severe burns occur in children aged under five years. In most severe cases, children can have some of their body parts badly scarred or disfigured, subjecting them to to stigmatization and mockery from their peers. In the following report, Jane Matebula focuses on the challenges in treating burn wounds. This after her visit to a charity organization in Johannesburg in South Africa, Children of Fire, which helps hundreds of children in Africa. The Children of Fire Trust was established in 1996 after founder and current director Bronwyn Jones realized there was a desperate need for an organization that could assist young South African burn survivors. Bronwyn had read an article about a six-month-old little girl who had been burnt in a shack fire and abandoned in hospital. In the severity of the fire, she lost her eyelids, nose, lips, hands and parts of her body were seriously scarred. When doctors planned to take Dora's eyes because the bandages were too expensive, Bronwyn fought to save them in the hope that a super surgeon somewhere might be able to restore her sight. Since then, Dora has had more than 32 operations and the Dora Mukwena Trust evolved into Children of Fire International, registered in England and Wales. The charity is currently also operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo, as Jones explains. Because the charity tackles impossible challenges that are just as daunting to the individual as building a massive dam across the Congo River is to engineers. Few medical cases are more daunting than those of Rien Nadine. But we flew a baby boy who was burned before he was even meant to be born from Kinshasa to Johannesburg as a miracle surgery. We hope that both the DRC and South Africa prosper so that surgery is not a dream for all the other burned children who need our help. Burns are often categorized as first, 
second or third degree depending on how bad the damage is. The most common burns are from steam, hot bath or cooking fluids. In South Africa, however, shack fires are common. Both the type and cause of burn determine how the injury is treated. Plastic surgeon from the South African Witwatersrand University, Professor Elias Ndobe, works very closely with children of fire. He highlights some of the challenges of treating burn wounds. The challenges we encounter is that the most of the kids actually present to us very late and therefore the complications are quite bad and operations quite complicated. So we're dealing with kids who've got contractures of the arms, of the lower limbs, of the face, loss of hair on the scalp that we call alopecia from bands. So some of them have limbs amputated because of the bands. Sometimes one hand, both hands or both legs and these kids are crippled for life. Professor Ndobe touches on the case of a baby who was recently flown from the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, for treatment for burn injuries caused by a lamp. The kid was burned, at, I think, at the age of a month or two. And this child has actually lost an eye, nose, burn contractures of the eyelids on the left-hand side, the upper and lower eyelid with the eye exposed, and that's affecting the upper lip as well. So the left part of the face is actually badly bent to the extent that she's lost vision in that eye. So the operations we're going to do is try to preserve what's left of the eye, reconstruct the eyelids. It's going to be a difficult operation. It won't be easy, but we'll try our best. He says successful recovery from burns depends on the condition. However, children attended immediately after the burn injury tend to recover quickly, especially in terms of physiotherapy, splitting and wound cover. And these are the voices of the children of fire who have sustained burn injuries of various degrees as they welcomed the ambassador of the DRC, His Excellency Ben Mboko, who recently visited the charity. Ambassador Mboko expressed gratitude towards the charity for the life-changing work it does. Now, first of all, I really would like to thank on behalf of uh, my government, my country, and on behalf of all the parents whose kids have been uh, victims of fire. This kind of work does not only require skills, it requires good heart. You have to have a good heart to volunteer to do this work. And not everybody is cut for that. So it takes a special individuals to do this kind of work. My government and myself will be ready to help you, support you in any way that we can. I'm very pleased to hear that we are also training the doctors who have certain skills. So I, I'm happy that this is happening. These children, they're beginning giving hope. I know in our society there is a stigma. Uh, I know what happens. Humbled by the presence of the ambassador, 17-year-old Ntabiseng Nkashe is a walking story of a girl who failed to get the surgery she needed in time, but grateful for the support she's received from the charity. Therapy has helped me to accept my situation and make my life easier. Besides me, the charity has helped dozens of others. Through energy means a penchance from Congo. We now also have a connection with your country. We hope we can maintain a good relationship with you. Social fire can help lots of others, Congolese and survive in this future. The support of your government will help us a lot. I want to stress the importance of what Children of Fire does. 
because as the best survivor myself, I know how it feels to be rejected and teased just because I'm a little different. And Mtogozi Sikwizi is a teacher at Children of Fire who feels strongly about treating victims with respect and dignity, saying no one ever chooses to be a victim of such an unfortunate event. First of all, you must understand that they did not choose to be in the condition that they are in. So if I did not choose to be like this, if I chose, then you might probably say, but why did you make that foolish choice? But now, if it's a circumstance that was beyond my control, then why should I be a victim of whatever ways you speak? Second, you must understand that it can happen to anyone. So I may be like this, I don't know from this distance to home, just within two hours, you don't know what will happen. So anything can happen in a second. So you can really never say you are safe until you die. Children of Fire is also concerned with addressing the self-esteem issues that burn survivors face in their teenage years. In a world where people are judged by how aesthetically pleasing to the eye they are, the charity actively promotes tolerance of physical disfigurement through media campaigns and educational talks. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back. The South African National Park says it has read with dismay the unfortunate advertisements and comments on social media platforms that have been doing rounds referring to a hunt of two troublesome lions allegedly originating from Kruger National Park. ABCBA, Kruger National Park Managing Executive, says there has been a concerning trend in recent times where certain individuals have fraudulently attached Kruger National Park's name and those of key employees in unscrupulous hunting business ventures all in effort to attract unsuspecting clients. I'm not exactly sure where it originates from, except that we just saw the advert on social networks and we also realized there were some complaints as well regarding to the same issue. But what bothered us was the fact that it is alleged these lions are problem animals that are being given away by Kruger. And we just wanted to clarify that we have nothing to do with that. It is not our practice at all. If a lion happens to be a problem in the park, we have established ways of disposing of it. As you mentioned that you don't know where this originates from, how far have you found information with regards to this advertisement so far? We are working on information that's been given to us. There is a name and some contact number that we are following on to trace the origin of this story. And once we have confirmed it, we will deal with it appropriately because we have had nothing to do with it and we wouldn't like our name to be attached to such practices. Has there been any attempt recently of this nature that has been making rounds with regards to using the Kruger National Park fraudulently for unsuspecting clients? 
Yeah, we are aware of one case that happened uh, somewhere in Limpopo where one individual issued letters in our name authorizing hunts on some private land. And clearly those names and signatures were fraudulently attached to the document. We could confirm that it definitely is not authentic and we are taking appropriate action with regards to that because I believe the person has been identified by now. What is being done in order to be able to nip this underbart before it uh, gets out of proportion? Well, there is a lot of mischief out there you will appreciate. The best we can do is to deal with things as they come and I guess we have all the necessary tools within legislation and policy to deal with each matter on its own merits. That is ABCB, Akruka National Park Managing Executive on the line, talking there to Wandile Kalipa. With that, let's find out what's been happening in the business world. With Thanks, Luyanda. South African Telecommunications Regulatory Body, ICASA, has announced new coal termination rates. The move is likely to see small industry players like Telcom, Mobile and Celsi suffer. The amount mobile companies charge each other to carry calls between their networks will be cut from 40 cents per minute to 10 cents in 2016. The first cut to 20 cents per minute will take effect at the beginning of March this year, 15 cents per minute next year and 10 cents in 2016. This will only apply to operators with less than 20% market share until 2017 when it will apply to operators with 10%. ICASA Councillor Peter Krutes. Lower fees are likely to have an impact on the revenue of main mobile operators, MTN and Vodacom, as well as fixed line operators, Telcom and Neotel. ICASA says a lack of competition in the telecommunications industry led to inefficient pricing. Shares of Telcom, which stands to benefit from the change in legislation, have risen more than 2%, whilst those of MTN are down. Morafi Tabani, SBC News, Johannesburg. Anglo-American Zion Oil Production has risen more than expected in the fourth quarter, recovering from trouble at the division's largest mine. Copper output also rose to a quarterly record. The mining group says output at its key Kumba iron ore unit rose by 25% to 11.3 million tons in the fourth quarter from the same period a year earlier when it was hit by a strike. An ongoing strike of uh, platinum miners in South Africa is costing the company about 4,000 ounces of platinum production a day, resulting in almost $10 million loss of revenue per day. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has defended the tender for a multi-billion dollar railway project that was won by a Chinese company and sparked widespread criticism over the transparency of the process. China Road and Bridge Corporation was appointed to build the first phase of Kenya's biggest ever infrastructure project. But anti-corruption watchdogs have urged Kenyatta to suspend construction while two parliamentary committees investigate the tender. The project to link the Indian Ocean port of Mombasa with Malaba on the Ugandan border is designed to cut transport costs and boost regional trade. 
Africa's biggest coffee exporter, Uganda, wants to develop a coffee bean that is resistant to drought, this to help mitigate the impact of climate change on its crop. The East African nation expects to export 3.5 million 60-kilogram bags in the 2013-2014 coffee season. State-run Uganda Coffee Development Authority, UCDA, says the country needs to have coffee varieties that are adaptable to climate change. And still in Uganda, the shilling of Uganda has firmed 0.4% held by non-government organizations that are converting hard currency to meet end-of-the-month payments and offshore investors buying local debt. Commercial banks have quoted the currency of East Africa's third largest economy at 2473 per dollar, stronger than Tuesday's close of 2485 per dollar. Uganda is offering three-year and ten-year treasury bonds with a combined $130 million. And that's your economics news. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tami Kuza from the Sports Desk. Let's start with Sokam. Uganda Cranes coach Milutin Sredojevic has tipped Nigeria and Zimbabwe to overcome their opponents in today's 2014 African Nations Championship semi-final ties. Mitchell team bowed out in the group stage after beating Burkina Faso, drawing with Zimbabwe and failing to Morocco. Speaking from Kampala ahead of the semi-final clashes, Mitchell says that although Ghana have showed good fighting spirits, the Super Eagles are on a high and will win the game. Mitchell says although Zimbabwe did not start well in the tournament, they have conceded only one goal and have rallied on a tight defense, so playing against Libya will give them an upper edge. And still goalless, we are in 35 minutes. In fact, we are almost half minutes into that match. Zimbabwe and Libya at the Free State Stadium. It's still goalless. And later, Ghana will be up against Nigeria in a match dubbed the Derby of West Africa. And that match will kick off at 8 p.m. Central African time. Let's move on to soccer, to hockey. The South African national women's hockey team take on Belgium in the third match tonight at the Hartley Vale Stadium in Cape Town. The series currently stands at one all, and tonight's match is likely to have plenty of fireworks as both teams will be vying to take the lead into the fourth test match. Shelton Rostin, who is a team manager of South African team, says that they will have to give an improved performance tonight after their Tuesday loss. For us, it's definitely... A focus on ourselves, um, you know, and, and our performance. And uh, we clearly want to make sure that we, we win as many of these matches as we can. And that's what we've set out to do. So I think that's also maybe one of the reasons, you know, that we, we look at back at the game last night and say, okay, well, we haven't um, achieved what we needed to achieve and uh, we need to change it tonight. And now in cricket, there are two changes to the South African Proteus squad that will face Australia in a three-test series starting on February at the Centurion. Imran Tahir and, and the retired Jacques who were part of the team that played against India last December, have been replaced by a recall duo of Ryan McLaren and Wayne Parnell. Coach Russell Domingo says that they will not be daunted by Australia, 
who whitewashed England 5-0 in the recent Ashes series. Yeah, look, I mean, Australia, they're a good cricket side. They've put in some good performances lately, but we've really got to focus on our preparation and our performances. Um, we, can't, we can't really lose too much sleep over our position. We've really got to make sure we analyse well and uh, employ our game strategies and tactics well, and that's what we're going to be focusing on and talking about over the next couple of days. The protests will begin live without their retired talisman Jacques who retired after the test against India last month. Domingo believes that players will step up to the plate in replacing Jacques Yeah, look, I suppose it'll take a bit of a mental shift as, as much as a, a tactical shift. Players have got to realise now that um, there's no Jacques on the change. I'm sure they all know that. And um, some guys, but w- once again, it's an opportunity for somebody to. To, to step up and, and put in some big performances. There's some quality players on our side that have been performing with Shark over the last couple of years, and um, I can see them continue to develop their games and, and make sure they put in some big performances, particularly in the series coming up. And finally with golf, the latest event on the European Tour and the third and the last installment of the Desert Swing, the Omega Dubai Desert Classic tees of tomorrow. Former champion Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods returned to the Emirates course after an absence and are pleased to join in the 25th celebration event. Stephen Gallagher defends the title he won 12 months ago. Rory McIlroy is one of the big names involved in the tournament. I feel I feel good driving the ball well, which is a big key for me. Um, so hopefully I can I can I can keep that up. But you know, looking forward to it. It's um, it would be a it's always good to, to, to get a win early on in the season. And um, you know it, it would be nice to, to be up there at least and, and challenge him for the trophy on Sunday. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. Let's close the show by taking a quick recap of your top stories now. The AU seeks more binding laws to curb the sketch of human trafficking. South Africa intensifies the campaign to encourage condom use. And that brings us to the uh, close of Africa Digest for today. From myself, your host, Lianda Maume, technical producer, Sfiso Masiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Until next time, we say goodnight. And-
Safari, Nicole and the baby, she does, 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 she does,